Hi, I'm Manika Raman-Wilms, and you're listening to The Decibel from The Globe and Mail. As Russia continues to invade Ukraine, the international community has responded with financial aid, weapons shipments, and strict economic sanctions. Western nations have been helping Ukraine while also punishing Russia and President Vladimir Putin for his actions. And Canada's had a role in this, but are we actually having an impact? It is the most crippling economic sanctions that has ever been imposed. And it is going to bring Russia to its knees, but it's not going to bring it to its knees like overnight. Robert Fife is the Globe's Ottawa bureau chief. He'll help explain what Canada's doing, what effect these measures will have on Russia, and how they might impact Canadians. This is The Decibel. Bob, it's, it's great to see you. I'm glad you could be here today. Always a pleasure to join you. It's now been over a week since Russia began its invasion of Ukraine. To get a, a big picture sense here, Bob, how would you characterize Canada's response so far? Canada has stepped up to the plate in a way that we probably haven't seen for a long, long time. This is the most significant event that has happened since the Second World War. Uh, After the fall of the uh, Iron Curtain in uh, 1989, everybody assumed that we would be able to have a a much more peaceful world, that we wouldn't have arms buildups and that there would be economic prosperity and hopefully a sweep of democracy through Eastern Europe. Well, now what has happened in uh, Russia has brought all the great fears back of that very dark period and Canada has played a very significant role as a middle power in working with our allies to take all the necessary steps coordinated with our allies to try to punish Vladimir Putin for his bloody invasion of Ukraine. And why this is just so significant, it's not just because the poor people of Ukraine, 44 million who want to have a democracy and want to be connected to Europe, But when you look at the map Mm. of Ukraine and and Central Europe, if they take Ukraine, it's going to be a very serious period of time in our lives. I mean, my father fought in the Second World War, and I've been grateful Mm. that none of us have had to worry about that kind of global threat. Mm -hmm. But it's real, and it's facing us now. As you said, a lot of Western countries have tried to punish Putin for this action by looking at economic sanctions, by essentially targeting money here. What has Canada specifically done when it comes to these economic sanctions and measures here? The most significant economic sanctions that have ever been placed on a major world power is what happened last Saturday. Mm-hmm. The, the fact that the Canadian government and the European Union and the United States have cut off Russia from the SWIFT banking message system, which basically banks communicate with each other about transactions through what is called the SWIFT messaging system, and that it has uh, basically frozen the foreign reserve exchange of the Central Bank of, of Russia it is the most crippling economic sanctions that has ever been imposed. And it is going to bring Russia to its knees, but it's not going to bring it to its knees like overnight. 
So those are very significant measures there, Bob. But can you give us a sense of, of what else we've done here? Canada has played a role in a number of areas. The European Union and the United States wanted Canada to play a role in terms of being the first country to take Russia to the International Court of Justice in The Hague. It's an area where we've had some expertise in, and the Europeans particularly felt that this is something that Canada should take the lead on. And they also asked us to, for example, to take a lead on being the first country to ban crude oil imports uh, from Russia. Now, we haven't had um, much uh, Russian crude oil coming into the country. The last time was in 2019. But we wanted, they wanted to keep sending signals because every measure that's been taken by any of the Western countries has been coordinated through the uh, European Union and the United States. And when one country does it, you'll see very soon after another country will bring this in as well to have maximum effect on hurting the Russian economy and trying to convince what appears now to be an unhinged dictator all alone on a, in his Kremlin palace that uh, he's made a very, very severe mistake mm-hmm. in invading Ukraine. It's a really interesting point that these are very uh, coordinated efforts, that Canada's not acting alone. A, a bunch of these countries are working together there. With all of these economic sanctions, will this have any effect on Canadians? Will there be any ripple effect, I guess, that Canadians themselves will, will feel because of these actions? Well, Krista Freeland, the finance minister, warned the other day that Canadians will feel economic pain. You know, it's going to affect not only energy prices, which is going to mean higher inflation, but it's going to also affect supply chains. And as you know, the pandemic had a major impact on supply chains, which caused an economic slowdown. And brace yourself for the uh, Canadian government taking action against Russian oligarchs and Russian businesses in this country, which could have another effect and possibly job losses for Canadians. I want to ask you specifically about weapons now, because Ukraine has been asking for help with respect to weapons, ammunition, other war equipment. What has Canada contributed to to that effort on that front? Well, we were very slow off the mark uh, in providing the weapons that the Ukrainians had asked for. I will say, though, that we weren't alone. The Europeans were also slow, not the Americans. Americans had been sending arms in since the summer. But There was a dispute in cabinet in uh, early February. We had expected that we would provide the Ukrainians with some uh, lethal weapons. Uh, That did not happen. There was a discussion in cabinet and some members, particularly from Quebec, did not feel that uh, we should be providing lethal weapons at this particular time. And they pointed out the fact, of course, that the Germans and the other European countries had, had not done so. So we should wait and do so. Uh, that, of course, has changed. We have now provided weapons. I mean, on Thursday, the, the, we just are sending them rocket launchers. Uh, a few days before that, we are provided them with Carl Gustav anti-tank weapons mm-hmm. that are will be very significant to help the Ukrainians if it comes down to street-by-street street fighting. Because as tanks rolled or channeled down streets, these Carl Gustavs are two-man weapon systems, which basically you put it on your shoulder and somebody loads it and you fire at the 
armored vehicle and uh, it'll either disable it or puncture it and kill everybody in it. But that's the kind of weapon that they will definitely need. It's not an offensive weapon, it's a defensive weapon that they will find very useful. The sooner we get it to them is the big issue. How, how soon can we get some of that stuff to them? How soon can we get that to them? How long does this kind of process take? The issue is not so much bringing, flying them over, it's getting them to the Ukrainians. Hungary has said, for example, that it wouldn't allow the transport of offensive weapons through its territory, Ukraine. So I'm, I'm assuming that Poland and the Baltic states are providing that avenue so that the, these weapons can, can get in. There's a lot of, for understandable reasons, secrecy about uh, how those weapons are getting there because you don't want to tip off the Russians. Yeah. I want to ask you about refugees as well, Bob, because we've now seen uh, over a million people who have fled Ukraine since this all started. What is Canada doing to help refugees from this war? Well, Canada had provided $50 million in humanitarian aid, and just this week it provided another $100 million of humanitarian aid. We have not done what the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress has done, is to provide travel-free visas to Ukrainians, and there's a reason for that. What we don't want to have is war criminals from Donetsk or Russian agents coming into Canada to either hassle people within the Ukrainian community or to sit here as, as somehow sleeper agents. So we're going to set up a program so they can come into the country, but uh, they're going to have to have some kind of a security uh, screening, just some, very similar to what we did with the Syrian refugees. Uh, the Ukrainian-Canadian community has raised a significant amount of money in preparation for um, Ukrainians coming here. The expectation, obviously, is that most people who come here will want to return to their home, but maybe they won't, right? I mean, if Russia captures the country and it imposes martial law, a lot of people who fled may not want to go back. This conversation reminds me, though, of, of we, we were talking about uh, Afghan refugees coming in a few months ago. Canada set that target of 40,000 people, and we haven't been anywhere near hitting that. I guess, how do we square that target that we haven't hit yet um, and now with this new idea of trying to bring in Ukrainian refugees as quickly as possible is, I guess, how, do, how, do, how does that work? Well, let's hope we perform a lot better with Ukrainians than we did with Afghans that we promised to bring in. We're nowhere near to ever bring in 40,000 in. Part of the reason for that, though, Manika, is that uh, a lot of these people are in Afghanistan and they can't get out. And the difference here is that the Ukrainians, it's easy for them. I mean, they're going to be, they're going to be in Poland, they're going to be in Baltic, they're going to be in Hungary, they're going to be in Romania. Mm. If they choose to come to Canada, it's very easy for them to get on flights to be able to come here. It's just an entirely different situation. Um, you know, Poland is not run by the Taliban. I want to ask you about Christia Freeland specifically. We've She's come up a couple times now, but she's been really at the forefront, it seems, at least the face of a lot of what's happening here. And she's got a lot of history with Ukraine and Russia as well. Can you give us a sense of that history and, and maybe how it's shaped the role that, that she's played here in Canada's response? Yeah, I mean, she has been, I think, quite impressive throughout this. And not surprisingly, I mean, she's a Ukrainian-Canadian her grandparents came from Ukraine and settled in Alberta. Her mother um, helped draft 
the Ukrainian constitution in the early 1990s. Ms. Freeland is fluent in Ukrainian, fluent in Russian. As a student in Ukraine, the KGB had followed her around because she was considered to be, you know, a Western activist. And you can be sure that they still have their sights on her. In fact, she was one of the first people who, along with the House of Commons Speaker and some conservative MPs, that Russia banned from traveling to her country because of their outspokenness in defense of Ukraine. Because she has terrible relations with the Russians, she has not, or the Canadian government has not, reached out to the Russians at all. There has been no phone call, for example, between the Prime Minister and, and Mr. Putin. But that, again, was another decision that was made by our allies that Emmanuel Macron, the French president, he would be the one, he'd be the point person. Basically, the allies have said, look, we don't want to have everybody talking to Putin. Let's have one person designated. And it makes sense that it, it has been Macron. You also mentioned that she played a, a significant role, I guess, when all these things were happening with the SWIFT sanctions that were coming through. Uh, what, what's the story behind the role that she played there, Bob? The Ukrainians came to her and said, can you please help us sell this to the Americans? And Ms. Freeland, she wrote a paper and she was able to take that document. She actually, she had to convince the Europeans as well, but mainly she needed to get the Americans on side. Um, and they agreed. And so on Saturday, before the, uh, the Western world announced the SWIFT and the central bank sanctions, uh, Ms. Freeland was on the phone uh, in Toronto and the prime minister was at Rideau Gate, which is on the governor general's grounds. Uh, along with them was the cabinet secretary for the European Union. They were waiting for uh, European Union President Ursula von der Leyen, who has been the air traffic controller in all of this. She's the one who coordinates all the sanctions and says when you can do this and when you can't do it. And while they're waiting for uh, the EU president to get on the line, she was delayed probably talking to another world leader. Uh, Ms. Freeland's phone rings and it's the prime minister of Ukraine. And he's, hey, like, what's going on with these sanctions? Can you tell me? She said, well, just hang on a minute. She puts, uh, puts them on the speaker phone and the EU president comes on. She says, look, I've got the Ukrainian prime minister here too. And she says, great. Are we ready to push the button and go on this? And the prime minister said, yes, we're ready to do it. Uh, we will do it right away now that you've got the green light from everybody. And, of course, uh, the Ukrainian prime minister was, to say the least, relieved, uh, saying that this is going to lead to the paralysis of the Russian banking system. And it's you can imagine how important that was for him. And, and then later that afternoon, um, the world announced that uh, these – really crippling sanctions were coming into place, something which Vladimir Putin did not expect. The U.S. President Macron had told him this, but he didn't believe it. He didn't think the Germans would do it. He didn't think that uh, European countries had the willpower to put in those kind of sanctions because they are going to bite back on Europe as, and, and the global economy as well. As well. Yeah. Right. Hmm. And of course, the most significant thing, aside from these sanctions, is the absolute turnaround in in Germany after 70 years of not wanting to have significant military power they've realized that they have to spend 100 billion dollars to rearm themselves 
And that is the most significant thing that we've seen probably out of this aside from those sanctions because Germany, the most powerful country in Europe, sees the threat that Russia poses to it and is going to significantly rebuild its military to counter that. What's at stake for Trudeau's government, for the liberal government here? Because Canada does have a very significant Ukrainian diaspora, 1.4 million people. So there's a lot of people that are really feeling this quite viscerally. What's at stake here? There is not a lot of unhappiness from the Ukrainian community, other than the fact that they were hoping we could move quicker on visas for Ukrainians. And they obviously wanted us to move much earlier on offensive weapons. But I think there's a larger issue at stake here is um, the world has changed. It's changed very, very rapidly. And if Germany, after 70 years of not wanting to rebuild its military, it's going to be time for Canada to step up too. We spend 1.3% of our GDP on, on the military. It's well below the 2% target that we should be. And that 2% target, that's the goal for NATO countries. Um, we still haven't got uh, F-35 jets, which is the more sophisticated jets, which Germany says they're going to buy. We had $12 billion that we'd committed to defense spending, which we never spent. We still have pistols that are 50 years old that our armed forces are using. We have a shortfall of 10,000 uh, soldiers for the military. We are facing a very significant threat in the Arctic from Russia. They have built a modern military base in the Arctic, and we don't even have an icebreaker. Uh, we can go up in the summertime, but we cannot go up in the wintertime, and the Russia has, as you know, uh, nuclear icebreakers. So I think it's judgment time here for the Canadian government that they're going to have to significantly beef up our spending. And I think Western countries around the world are all going to have to do this because we now realize that we can't take prosperity and, and freedom for granted anymore, that we do have to have a significant military machine behind you if you want to continue to remain as democratic and free. I mean, the way when you're talking about this, Bob, it really does sound like it's kind of the end of this this peaceful little interlude that we've kind of had here. If, if this is something that's making countries want to build up their military, I guess, are we starting the, the beginning of a, a new kind of order here or a new kind of emphasis on, on this might? Yes, I think we have to do that. I mean, look what's happened. I mean, they've invaded Ukraine. They're killing people. They're using cluster bombs. They're using vacuum bombs. They're destroying cities. And if they succeed, and they're probably going to succeed in Ukraine, then Eastern Europe is under threat. And when it comes to helping Ukraine uh, or punishing Russia, is there anything that Canada has said it won't do? Christopher Freeland and the Prime Minister have all said that um, everything is on the table except this. We are not going to impose a no-fly zone. Nobody wants to have World War III. And that would be the result of that. But they've also told the Russians, step one foot into NATO territory and we will fight you. Bob, thank you so much for walking us through this and helping us understand this today. You're more than welcome. That's it for today. I'm Manika Raman-Wilms. Our producers are Madeline White and Cheryl Sutherland. David Crosby edits the show. Kasia Mihailovich is our senior producer, and Angela Pachenza is our executive editor. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you next week.